Well, good morning, church. Good to worship with you together. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here working primarily with our youth and children's ministries. And I'm feeling something a little personal here this morning. If we would all draw our attention to the middle section here. If this was a youth night, I would say everybody leap over three pews forward. (laughs) I'm not going to make you do that. I have heard the feedback that I talk a little loud. Uh, which you can just talk to Pastor Keith who hired me, knowing he hired an old camp worker, used to the campfire scene and all of that. Uh, But today I'm sad to say if that is your uh, concern, it probably won't be any different today. Uh, You see, Keith has a talent of giving away time change Sunday morning preaches. Uh, And they say it's an extra hour sleep but they forget the caveat of if you have young kids, they wake up at 4.30. Uh, And so that was my household this morning, and so I've had an extra hour of coffee in me this morning. And so perhaps what you need to do in case you are one of those blessed few who did get an extra hour sleep and are just moseying your way, I imagine it oh so peacefully to church this morning. Uh, Could you turn to your neighbor and say a boisterous, get ready, get ready, get ready. All right. Thanks for humoring me with that one. Uh, We are in a series talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We've been unpacking the invitation he extends to us to walk with him, become like him, and join in what Jesus is doing. We believe that every time we gather together and throughout your week, God desires to work in your heart and mind and through your life. So as we unpack scripture, our sincere prayer is that we would leave different than when we walked in this morning, and I hope that's your prayer as well. Now we've got an interesting challenge this morning, because not only is it time change morning, but we also have an extremely familiar passage. I would put money on, if I was a betting man, that if you spend any time in Sunday school, you have learned this story. That, see if this sparks a childhood memory for you. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree just to see what he could see. We are looking at the story, the encounter of Zacchaeus this morning, the man of small stature who climbed up in a sycamore tree just to see what he could see. The challenge always at hand, or perhaps the question that I hope we ask ourselves when looking at a familiar passage is, God, what do you have for me afresh this time? God, would I hold on to all the things you've taught me before? There is great comfort. There is challenge as we are reminded again and as perhaps we're faced with, I still need that reminder. I still need that challenge. But also, God, is it possible that there's something new for us this morning? And I believe there is. Now, you can read Zacchaeus in a couple of different ways. One of the ways we probably most commonly do it is by placing ourselves in the story as the person of Zacchaeus. And there is rich, richness to dive into there as we place ourselves as Zacchaeus, as the one that God looks at with arms wide open. But I want to take a little different approach this morning. 
Today I want to read the story not so much placing ourselves as the scoundrel that Jesus is on a quest to encounter, but rather as a person in the crowd. So we're going to flip things around a little bit. I truly believe that as I've prepared and read and studied and written and discussed and and, and sat in this text that there is something God wants to shift in the spirit of us and our church this morning. So let's begin. Luke chapter 19. If you want to turn in your Bibles to it, it will be on the screen, but there's great value in turning to your Bibles or the Pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 732. Luke 19, verses 1 to 9. Here's what it says. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He is gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Lord, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would work in us afresh. That you would shift something in us, God, as we place ourselves in the crowd. That we would capture a glimpse, a better picture of just how marvelous your agape love is. That you would do away with things in us that are of no help and have no part in the kingdom of God. We wait with receptive hearts, open hands, ready minds. Speak, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So the story begins with Jesus entering a city, and this is familiar language for us. Jesus is often discovered to be on the move, isn't he? He's leaving somewhere, he's entering somewhere, he's passing through, he's traveling. And he's always on the move, but he does so in an incredibly people-oriented, unhurried manner. And he's entering a town called Jericho. Here's what we know about Jericho. It's a number of miles away from Jerusalem, but you would travel through it on your way there, which Jesus is on his way to the Passover feast to celebrate in Jerusalem. It's an oasis city. It's known as the City of Palm Trees. Herod built his winter palace near here for its warm climate and fresh water springs. Jericho catered to the rich and powerful. As a result, it attracted a lot of people experiencing homelessness and those who were societal outcasts, those who had hoped to receive alms from the well-to-do traders and political elite that lived, vacationed, or traveled through Jericho. And then we meet the character, the scoundrel, Zacchaeus. And there's four things to know about Zacchaeus. First, in the name Zacchaeus, we discover that he is a Jew. Okay, on researching this, Zacchaeus, it's a Jewish name. He's a Jew, he's a chief tax collector, he's wealthy, and he's 
a sinner. Now, if you spent time reading the Gospels, you may have picked up on the fact that tax collectors are not popular people. They are not looked favorably. And why was this? Well, they were both political and spiritual sellouts. So political sellout. Here's what I mean by this. It comes down to the word boiled up in the word collaborator. So Rome is the imposing empire. The Jews, a collaborator is a Jew who has sided with the Romans to do the Romans' dirty work, so to speak. And they are going to bring in the taxes and pass it off to the Roman superior of the region. Here's the major problem. Not only have they sided with Rome, but they get to add on a few percentages to the tax. You see, it wasn't really widely known how much tax you would owe. Sure, Zacchaeus knew, but you were powerless as the person paying the tax. And so Zacchaeus could add on and just state, here's how much you owe, and you had no right to argue with him. He's made his money off the backs of his fellow Jews. But then not only is he a political sellout, he is a spiritual one, for he has misaligned an allegiance instead of to Yahweh, but to Rome. He pledges his allegiance in a wrong place. Zacchaeus is viewed as the problem for many people. He is the face of oppression. When people think of the oppressor, he is the hand and face of the Roman unjust oppression. And he was hated by all in the town of Jericho. And so with that in mind, we begin to see just how scandalous Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus would have been for the crowd gathered around. Now, it might be helpful. I've found this interesting in my study to take a moment to look back at chapter 18, You can turn there if you want. I'm just going to retell the story of what happens immediately before this encounter with Zacchaeus. For we see not the oppressor, but the oppressed. Here's what happens. Jesus is approaching Jericho. So instead of entering, he's approaching. The crowd would have gone out to welcome this prestigious word is getting out about this rabbi, anointed rabbi Jesus. They've gone out of the town to meet him, to welcome him in with pride to their village. And the crowd tries to shush a man for he's screaming on the side of the road. He's screaming names of Jesus with profound clarity that he is the Messiah long awaited. And then Jesus tells the crowd, and I love this, Jesus invites the crowd to be active participants bringing the man to Jesus. They've been holding the man at arm's length away from Jesus. Now Jesus is saying, you bring him to me. Jesus asks the man, what do you want? He wants to be see. Jesus heals him. He can see. And the crowd would have gone wild. Because while they may not have placed themselves on equal footing with the blind man, in his receiving sight, they would have seen good news for them. That there is good news that the anointed Messiah has come and that will usher in a new kind of kingdom that will not be one of oppression, but of raising up the least of these. 
The crowd would have celebrated along with the blind man. This is good news for us, too. But then Jesus continues his journey towards Jericho, and we see Zacchaeus, who is entirely different. You see, the story of Zacchaeus shakes up everything we think we know about Jesus, everything we think we know about what determines one's status before God. Even if you've been tracking with the story of Luke, this should shake up your thinking. If you've been tracking with Luke, you might come to the conclusion that the wealthy and the rulers are out, and the sinners and tax collectors are in. That's confusing enough. After all, it was just earlier in chapter 8 than the story I just recounted where Jesus interacts with the rich young ruler. We know this story where the man comes and says, I've followed all your laws. And Jesus says, great, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the man leaves sad. And then Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than the wealthy to enter the kingdom. And it's left hanging. Do the wealthy belong in the family of God? But now we find ourselves in Luke 19 and we're presented with Zacchaeus, the man who is all kinds of challenging and scandalous because he's a Jew, but a tax collector. He's a sinner, but he's wealthy. Is he in or is he out? Here's the question about to be put to the crowd. How do you decide who belongs and who doesn't? How do you decide who is accepted into the family of God and who isn't? What formulas have we used to determine for ourselves on God's behalf who is inside or outside the family of God? What we'll discover is that there's only one formula for who belongs and who doesn't, and it's faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen. See, here's the thing with Zacchaeus as we dive further into the story. He knew full well he was out. He didn't fit with the Romans because he's a Jew. He didn't fit with the Jews because he was a collaborator and a traitor in cahoots with the Romans. He didn't fit with the wealthy because how you get your money is of equal importance as how much money you have. And he definitely doesn't fit with the townspeople because he's got all their money that they earned, worked hard for. He's got no people to call his own. We see this even if, so if Zacchaeus was a societal elite, in Middle Eastern culture, they would have heralded his arrival in the crowd and made a way for him to come and sit at the anointed rabbi Jesus' feet. But that doesn't happen. And one can imagine that Zacchaeus might have been putting his very own life at risk if he had entered the crowd. Because in a crowd, you've got the mob mentality, right? We see this in the news. Anything can happen in a mob. Minds go out the window. What you wouldn't dare do in your personal taxes due meeting with Zacchaeus, you'll throw any jab physical or verbal, when you're in a crowd and there's little recourse. So Zacchaeus is faced with a dilemma. Zacchaeus has heard of the man Jesus and desires, desires to see him. What will he do? He devises a plan. I'll run through town, ahead of the crowd. 
I'll get out there. Hopefully the crowd will kind of dispel, right? We've already done the head out of the village, welcome him into Jericho. And so maybe the crowd will start to disperse in disappointment that he's not staying at anyone's house. He's not eating anyone's food. So they'll start to disperse and, oh, there's a tree. There's a sycamore tree a little way out from town with low branches. I can reach those and big leaves. I can hide up there. Maybe no one will see me. But to run and to climb, only children run and climb. Only children run and climb. Men who are prestigious or who think they are don't run and climb. Embarrassing doesn't even come close to describing it. This man is determined and is genuine in his determination to encounter Jesus. What Zacchaeus is about to discover, though, and as we read, we see that while Zacchaeus is determined to encounter Jesus, Jesus is on a quest to encounter Zacchaeus. While Zacchaeus may have been content enough to get merely a glimpse, hear some good words, get some wisdom, be able to tell others that he heard what Jesus said, Jesus calls out to Zacchaeus and calls him by name. And I wonder, had the crowd spotted Zacchaeus? Did the leaves not do their job at hiding him well? And so the crowd is jeering and, and, and throwing shots at him. So Jesus steps into an even more volatile scoundrel situation with this scoundrel. Or does Jesus know Zacchaeus' name because he's a beloved child? Which would be true as well. We don't know. But we do see Jesus calling him by name, and in the invitation to come down, it's an invitation to walk alongside Jesus. Declaring that he would eat with him, he would stay in his guest bed, this was to enter the most hated house in the region, and yet Jesus is saying, I love this person. Scandalous. Jesus, who many claim to be the long-awaited Messiah, on his way to the Passover feast, was about to defile himself in this collaborator's house. Ceremonial cleansing would be required before the Passover feast. And so the crowd would have been more than horrified at this act. And we see it right in the text. They're grumbling. And Jesus always knows the grumbling that's going on. Zacchaeus the sinner. What is this Jesus doing? Here we see what the crowd need to learn that day and what you and I need to grasp. That how we decide who belongs and who doesn't has no place in the kingdom of God. Jesus' original audience, they had this picture and it would have gone something like this of how Jesus should have been expected to interact with Zacchaeus. Might have sounded something like this. Zacchaeus, you are a collaborator. You are an oppressor of these good people you have drained the economic lifeblood of your people and given it to the imperialists. You have betrayed your country and your God. This community's hatred of you is fully justified. You must quit your job, repent, 
journey to Jerusalem for ceremonial purification, return to Jericho and apply yourself to keeping the law. If you are willing to do these things, on my next trip to Jericho, I will enter your then purified house and offer my approval. It's almost what we want to hear at times too, isn't it? I mean, he is unjust. This is the oppressor. Who in their right mind would want to associate with him unless he cleans up his act? Jesus will have nothing to do with this line of thinking. He doesn't give it even a nod, but goes the exact opposite, saying, I must, I must stay at your house. In so doing, Jesus extends a rescue line to Zacchaeus, who is in desperate need of the saving hand of God. Isn't it interesting, one step further, that Zacchaeus, and we don't know when, says Zacchaeus stood up. And so at some point, we can assume during the meal, maybe at breakfast after Jesus sleeps in the guest bed, Zacchaeus stands up with the declaration, and it's not what is expected. It's not that he's going to tow the party line. It's going to be far more radical. He doesn't say, I'm going to tithe, I'm going to fast, I'm going to travel to Jerusalem. Instead, he's going to live a life of poverty. We can read this and think, well, he's wealthy. What, giving away a little money? What kind of life change is that? But I read some math on this. 50%, he's given away. With what's remaining, if even 13% of all of the money Zacchaeus had, if even 13% was from wrongful gain, this would have rendered him bankrupt. This is a changed life. This is a life that will never look like it once did. We still have our questions. Is he still going to have the job of tax collector, but just do it justly, but still in cahoots with the Romans? We don't know. But this is a life changed in line with the kingdom. And Jesus shows his approval of Zacchaeus, not so much his commitment, but of the person by saying, you are a son of Abraham. Now, Chris Downey translation you belong in the family of God. You are of the family line, the lineage of God. Zacchaeus shows that he understands far more about the kingdom than the crowd that day. And Jesus again takes it one step further. If you didn't get that I was befriending Zacchaeus by eating with him, which was scandalous in itself in Middle Eastern culture, let me say it with my words. This person belongs in the family of God. This would have been so hard for those in the crowd to wrap their heads around. It was counter to everything they'd grown up thinking, everything they'd been taught. What were they to do with this new formula or this, this lack of formula for who belongs and who doesn't? How would they go and live their lives as representatives or agents of this kind of kingdom? Would they choose to extend the same scandalous love to others? Or would they continue to function like the crowd they were before? 
trying to decide on Jesus' behalf who needs to be kept at arm's length from the family of God. Oh, that's the question I want us to consider this morning. If we're honest, we often have formulas ingrained in us that we use and apply for who's in and who's out. Sometimes it's based solely on what people look like or the way they dress, the way they talk, the things they talk about, the way they spend their money. We cast judgment on people all the time at traffic lights, (laughs) people we've never even met. So who belongs and who doesn't in the family of God in our church? Let's get a little extreme. Donald Trump walks in the door. Justin Trudeau, Taylor Swift, Kanye West, name your person. We all have people that we would look at and have never met and would say either one way or the other. Either they're for sure in, and maybe not even for reasons that align with the kingdom, or not a chance. There's no way. I can't comprehend a God who would extend love and acceptance and grace to that person, even though we've received so much for ourselves. But maybe those are a bit too unrealistic. Does the alcoholic belong? What about the adulterer? The person covered in tattoos, is there room in God's family for them to belong? What about when you hear LGBTQ+. Is there room in the family of God? To be clear, we as a church hold to a traditional sexual ethic, but could members of the LGBTQ plus community be like Zacchaeus, someone who's been kept at arm's length in the past, who needs to be welcomed into the family of God? Let's make it even more personal. What about that neighbor, that family member? You know the one. (laughs) The one you would do anything to avoid that conversation with that conversation because of that view that they hold that they always want to talk about at the neighborhood and family gatherings, that person that you just get a little prickly just thinking about. The questions we need to ask ourselves is what formulas are ingrained into my way of thinking that tries to determine who belongs and who doesn't in the family of God? And I believe instead... We need to adopt the criteria of scandalous love, asking ourselves, what does it look like to be a people that mirrors the scandalous love of God to the others in our society? Sometimes it's hard to picture, to grasp an image of how much we've been loved by the Father. And so how we need to go and live likewise. There's a story I came across in one of Mark Buchanan's book. And the lady, Regine, tells this story. And I think it helps us understand the grace we've received, the grace we can share to another. It's from Mark Buchanan's book, Hidden in Plain Sight. Regine is originally from Rwanda and became a follower of Jesus while reading her sister's Bible during the genocide that ravaged her country. 
When she fled to Canada for refuge, she met her husband Gordon here. Following the war of genocide, they decided to return to Rwanda to show the love of Christ to the people who had once been her enemies. Scandalous love. And she tells a story about a woman she met who had been affected by the Rwandan conflict. Here's how the story goes. A woman's only son was killed. She was consumed with grief, hate, and bitterness. God, she prayed, reveal my son's killer. One night, she dreamed she was going to heaven, but there was a complication. In order to get to heaven, she had to pass through a certain house. She had to walk down the street, enter the house through the front door, go through its rooms, up the stairs, and exit through the back door. She asked God, whose house is this? It's the house, he told her, of your son's killer. The road to heaven passed through the house of her enemy. Two nights later, there was a knock at her door. She opened it, and there stood a young man. He was about her son's age. Yes, he hesitated. Then he said, I am the one who killed your son. Since that day, I have had no life, no peace, so here I am. I am placing my life in your hands. Kill me, I am dead already. Throw me in jail, I am in prison already. Torture me, I am in torment already. Do with me as you wish. Oh, the woman had prayed for this day. Now it had arrived, and she didn't know what to do. She found to her own surprise that she did not want to kill him or throw him in jail or torture him. In that moment of reckoning, she found she only wanted one thing, a son. I ask this of you, she said. Come into my home and live with me. Eat the food I would have prepared for my son, wear the clothes I would have made for my son, become the son I lost, And so he did. Church, may we be a people of soft hearts and quickly opened arms towards those who think, look, act, talk different than us. For in so doing, the Zacchaeuses of the world may come into a saving relationship with Jesus and have their lives radically reoriented and altered as a response. So church, let me just end with this. There's good news for all of us and not just a posture shift that needs to happen inside of us. There is good news here. So allow me to speak to that for just a moment. The good news is this. Not so long ago, we were all Zacchaeuses in Jesus' eyes. Jesus looks at us and loves us. He calls us by name. He looks up into the tree, sees us through the leaves, calls us by name, and befriends us when we are at our worst. We are in need of the scandalous love of God, not just once, not just at the time of first putting our faith in God, but every single day. This is the good news. Jesus sees us, knows us, loves us, and he loves us right where we're at before we clean ourselves up and get our act together. Before we're living rightly according to any human formula. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is scandalous love. And it's the kind that doesn't come looking like we expect it to. 
And I am so thankful for that. It doesn't take into account your history. It doesn't take stock of what you bring or don't bring. That doesn't matter. He's simply in love with you. And this love doesn't exclude anyone. It holds no one at arm's length, arm's length away. The arms are out, but they're wide open. And so if you're breathing this morning, his love is for you and his heart reaches out for you. His arms are wide open for you. And if that other person in your world, in society, is breathing, his love is for them too. Just the same is for you. And he invites us to be agents along with him with arms wide open. Let's pray. God of all grace, God of scandalous love that I confess I don't always understand. And I don't have the clearest picture of what you've done for me, God. But oh, the glimpses I get lead me to my knees to say, God, if you have been so loving towards me when I'm at my worst, and you continue to love me even as I'm at my worst, how your love must reach for the others in our world. God, change us, move us. You love the little children, all the little children of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.